everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And yes, indeed, today is no exception. I'm excited to once again be talking to my colleague and my friend, uh, Dr. Tom Fabian. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Uh, he's a leading expert on the role of microbiome in health, immune function, chronic disease, and aging. As a translational scientist, his primary focus is on the clinical application of microbiome research in the integrative and functional medicine space. He received his PhD in molecular biology from the University of Colorado at Boulder and has worked as a biomedical researcher in the biotechnology industry, and more recently as a consultant in the microbiome testing field. Currently, Dr. Fabian serves as a consultant and science advisor with Diagnostic Solutions Laboratory, and he is also a science advisory board member with Designs for Health. In addition, he is certified as a nutrition therapy practitioner by the Nutrition Therapy Institute in Denver. Dr. Fabian, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you so much, Kara. It's great to be here today. It's always great to be with you. I know we've done, and we'll pull all of this information over into the show notes. We've had multiple podcasts. We did a great webinar together. We've had fabulous conversations. Your conversations are always interesting to people. They they get a lot a lot of listens, and 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 we we are often pinged with questions. And today's is going to be no exception. We're going to be talking about all things hydrogen sulfide and the microbiome. Tom, the first thing is, I mean, I got so my questions are: give me a general overview of hydrogen sulfide and the picture as it's evolved over time. Talk to me about it. I want you to include at some point, I want you to divert over to how we think about it in functional medicine. I mean, honestly, hydrogen sulfide, if you say it, if, if I were in my clinical rounds meeting with the physicians and nutritionists on my team and, and I brought up hydrogen sulfide, everybody would think of it as a bad actor. How do we get rid of it? It's like the problem child cause of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth that we can't measure, et cetera. And we would be wanting to um, think about interventions to, to knock it out. But talk to me about a high level overview, how it's evolved with time. And then at some point, let's move over to thinking about it uh, through the functional medicine lens and how we might need to be really corrected. Absolutely. I'd be happy to talk about that. Um... So really, this is, is a topic I'm really excited about um, for various reasons. It really does involve uh, kind of all this new information that's coming out recently from the research in the microbiome field. But hydrogen sulfide has a long history in health and has kind of changed over time. So historically, going back, say, to the 1700s, 1800s, uh, it was first recognized as a potentially toxic gas. So in excess at high levels, uh, it actually can cause symptoms uh, that are similar to cyanide poisoning. So it's thought to be at really high levels. Uh, it's obviously very hazardous, poisonous, uh, and even at high enough levels, it can cause death. Um, so it's kind of the the classic sort of, I think they refer to that as the Janus-faced type compound where you have both the good side and the bad side. And how I think would that's one really accumulate? I... Like how, how would we get to, you know, fatal levels of hydrogen sulfide? So it's curious. produced, it's kind of, you know, you think of the um, geothermal type sources, uh, yeah, logical yeah. sources, but sure. particularly biological sources. So uh, historically, for example, swamps, um, places that have a lot of decaying organic matter, um, oh. a lot of those microbes that are present can produce large amounts of hydrogen sulfide that can get trapped. So if it's suddenly released um, in a individual working in an industry where that uh, is a potential risk factor could get exposed to high levels. Um, so it's really more of a sort of industrial um, industrial type concern as far as the toxicity uh, at that level. Um, but then there's also sort of the physiological levels that um, have been suspected to be a problem in certain scenarios. Uh, so primarily in the research, the concerns other than sort of the high toxic levels that are fairly isolated cases, um, the concerns really tend to be around uh, effects uh, in the colon in particular, because that's uh, from research, we know that's where it's produced in the highest concentration by bacteria in the colon. Uh -huh. uh, we certainly can talk about what's known currently about which ones tend to produce it uh -huh. and under what circumstances. So 
kind of one of the key themes here, I think, that I want everyone to understand is context is really important. So, of course, we all know that nothing is strictly good or bad, typically. Uh, and hydrogen sulfide is really one of those cases. Um, but it's in terms of potential negative health effects, uh, the best documentation so far, and it's still kind of controversial in terms of what levels, what circumstances might cause problems. Uh, but those conditions primarily would be ulcerative colitis uh, and then colon cancer. Um, so there are some concerns there. Uh, and high levels of hydrogen sulfide may be an issue uh, for those patients, uh, might even play a causal role. That's the part that's still kind of not well worked out yet. Uh, then we certainly know that in the SIBO field, that's one of the three gases that are focused on. Uh, and more recently, um, some of the research that's been noted has suggested a possible role in uh, IBSD, uh, so a diarrhea dominant IBS potentially. Um, and so we can talk more about that as well, but really what I wanted to do is because of this sort of focus in our field on the negative aspects, mm -hmm. um, there's this huge growing literature on uh, the last, especially in the last five to 10 years on the potential benefits and physiological roles of hydrogen sulfide. Sort of dwarfing the, the negative body of Potentially. Literature. Yeah. And I think it has to do with. Um, overall, the levels that are produced, how it's produced, um, and certainly location. So high concentrations in the colon, um, that's really where the best evidence is that there could be a negative effect. Uh, so that's something we can talk about, certainly in terms of what's known from uh, how we can influence that in a therapeutic level. Um, and there's a lot of ways that we can do that that I think is not really um, well known among clinicians yet. Okay. Uh, so I'm, Really excited right. to talk about the therapeutic end when we get to that part of it. But um, as far as the benefits, there was really a landmark study um, that came out in, I think it was around 2014, 2015. And I actually have this in front of me. It was titled, Endogenous Hydrogen Sulfide Production is Essential for Dietary Restriction Benefits. Um, so that was really one of the first studies hmm. that linked hydrogen sulfide to potentially mediating the benefits of dietary restriction and promoting longevity. What specific, what kind of dietary restriction is this caloric, general caloric restriction or what were they doing? Um, it was kind of all around caloric restriction, but they did uh -huh. narrow that down in subsequent studies, um, particularly to the sulfur amino acids, especially methionine. Uh, so as we all know, methionine is uh, certainly of course, key to the methionine cycle for methylation. Um, but then that actually also feeds into the transsulfuration pathway, yeah. uh, which we can talk about as well, because that's a major source of beneficial hydrogen sulfide. Um, so this is really kind of the first look at uh, some effects that it may have in promoting longevity. Um, but prior to that, the picture started changing in the 90s. Let me, let me just make sure I got this and hold that thought. This study suggests that the presence of hydrogen sulfide, get GI produced hydrogen sulfide, not endogenously produced hydrogen sulfide. Dictated. No, so that's actually a point. Um, definitely want to clarify that hydrogen sulfide, unlike the other gases that are commonly produced by the microbiome, like hydrogen and methane, um, is actually also produced by our own cells. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's considered, and that was actually discovered uh, for the first time in the 90s, and that started this whole new wave of research where prior to that, it was just thought of as a toxin. Now we know it actually has um, a really expanding uh, set of clinical roles, physiological roles that are really important for health, uh, particularly uh, antioxidant status, et cetera. Okay. So this would be both endogenously produced and, are, and also produced in, in the GI, like both sources of hydrogen sulfide can have benefit. Potentially, yeah. There's now research showing that up to a point, um, hydrogen, and then it's, it's highly reactive, so it reacts with other uh, chemicals, particularly other hydrogen compounds. And that group together is called reactive uh, sulfide species, or RSS. Mm -hmm. So as a group, and they can be interconverted. So different types of sulfur compounds can then be used to generate hydrogen sulfide when needed. And hydrogen sulfide can be used 
by the body to convert to these other compounds. And these compounds are thought to have a really strong antioxidant potential. Um, so, so the fast. idea is that the sources of, of sulfur, particularly diet uh, and the microbiome can influence health because it can influence systemic levels of not only hydrogen sulfide, but these reactive sulfur species. That are beneficial. I mean, we often think of RS, like ROS as not good actors, but RSS have, have a role. Exactly. In, and in that's, that's kind of the, the challenge in communicating. This is kind of a rapid paradigm shift. A lot of this uh, research has come out just in the last, say, seven years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but now they recognize that, of course, there's um, the reactive oxygen species, which we've known about for a long time, that can be pretty damaging. Mm-hmm. Then there's the reactive nitrogen species, uh, which are kind of mixed, but they can be damaging as well. And then there's the reactive sulfur species that is widely now thought to be protective and actually protects against the other two types. Interesting. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay. And they're uh, actually calling that whole group of uh, the ROS, the RNS, and then the RSS, or the reactive sulfur species. Um, the term that's being thrown out now is reactive species interactome or RSI. Fascinating. Oh, that's great. By the way, folks, on the show notes, we will um, link to all the all the papers that Dr. Fabian's um, mentioning. All right. So it's it's an important player, might be a piece of the mechanism of caloric restriction benefit, which is wildly fascinating. I mean, you know, I'm interested in looking at epigenetics and, you know, biological age as measured by DNA methylation. And there was a, you know, caloric restriction in animal models and in a new, a relatively new study looking at humans doing two years of caloric restriction. It significantly showed, slowed down one of the DNA methylation clocks and, you know, could, could, could this be a piece of the puzzle having sufficient, um, hydrogen sulfide, you know, could this, could this be a little, um, something that we want to, those of us interested in longevity and, and, and you are as well, you know, could this be something that we want to be considering about or thinking about? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's been verified in several studies now. So that study I mentioned, um, the one that was published in cell, I think in 2015 or so, Mm -hmm. um, there've been several follow-up studies since then. Um, that have confirmed that in a wide variety of animal models, hydrogen sulfide signaling is kind of that process that, that it refers to, um, is now thought to be a central process uh, because hydrogen sulfide is now thought to be a key mediator in terms of signaling in the stress responses. Um, there's research, for example, showing that it can um, activate NRF2, which is the oh. key factor, uh, transcription factor that helps to turn on genes that are involved in uh, protecting against oxidative stress, uh, also turning on genes involved in phase two detoxification uh, and also anti-inflammatory effects as well. So when we think of aging, we think of inflammaging, there's evidence that physiological hydrogen sulfide actually can be anti-inflammatory. So fascinating. All right. Everybody wants to know how we increase them, but I don't want to, I don't want to actually get to that conversation yet. I want to talk about it, you know, in pathology, like um, age-specific diseases, um, or excuse me, age-related conditions. And hydrogen, I, I, you know, is, is a hydrogen sulfide deficit implicated? Or, I mean, how do we think about that? Yeah, there's growing evidence now that um, various ways to measure uh, these uh, hydrogen sulfide itself and then the related compounds. So again, these are fairly interchangeable and that's why it's referred to kind of collectively as this RSS, uh, the reactive species interactome. Um, so essentially what they found, uh, and it's really interesting key studies recently showing that both in aging, um, hydrogen sulfide production goes down, the genes from oh. the transsulfuration pathway that help produce it go down. Um, the effects, the positive effects from hydrogen sulfide on terms of these um, altered proteins. We can talk a little bit about that as well. There's a lot, I'm trying to keep it not too technical, but um, hydrogen sulfide mediates some of its benefits through 
modifying proteins. And I mentioned the NRF2, uh, and that's how it can activate the NRF2. Um, so these sorts of changes have been noted not only in aging itself in some studies, uh, but also in specific diseases. And they tend to be more the cardiometabolic type conditions. So uh, certainly with cardiovascular disease, that's probably the best studied in terms of the overall role of hydrogen sulfide and also the beneficial effects of therapeutic hydrogen sulfide. Um, so um, there's actually a review article that just came out within the last month or so in Nature Review's cardiology, summarizing sort of the status of this research on hydrogen sulfide in cardiovascular disease. Uh, so from that article and others, they talk about um, the fact that hydrogen sulfide uh, has similar effects to nitric oxide in that it helps uh, with vascular tone. Interesting. So it can help reduce blood pressure and it's being explored as a potential therapeutic for hypertension, uh, for stroke prevention. Uh, it's also been noted as protective in cardiac hypertrophy, i.e. enlarged heart or left ventricular hypertrophy, atherosclerosis, uh, arrhythmia, uh, and other types of vascular dysfunctions as well. Um, and then when you add that to its known effects on uh, reducing inflammation in certain circumstances, uh, et cetera, and it's thought that it can even help with the endothelial barrier. So it reduces that permeability that can happen when blood vessels are um, not quite functioning optimally. So there's a lot of different ways now that it's been documented to potentially uh, have beneficial effects um, in cardiovascular disease in particular, uh, but also in diabetes, in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Uh, it's being explored in neurodegenerative diseases as well. Osteoporosis, IBD, <laughs> it's even been explored as a potential therapeutic in COVID-19 uh, and a few others as well. With really the main sort of one that doesn't fit that picture, uh, again, being uh, potentially cancer. Um, so that's where if patients kind of, as is the case with anti antioxidants in general, there's concern of the use or overuse of antioxidants for patients who have cancer. And is that, that just true. a hypothetical? Or is um, there any there's, evidence? There is some research to suggest that it's um, high levels of hydrogen sulfide and then its effects, particularly in activating um, genes like the NRF2, um, can potentially help uh, reduce the effectiveness of cancer therapies, uh, for example. Yes. Interesting. Okay, so then would this be hydrogen, exogenous hydrogen salt? Like, how, how would this actually happen that you would be, that your hydrogen sulfide would be so high, that NERF2 would be so on that you would influence um, your chemotherapeutics? What That's kind of question? So the concern is uh, mostly in terms of using uh, what are called hydrogen sulfide donors. Um, so this is a class of compounds that are, have been explored now. Um, and some of them I think are actually now in clinical use uh, under various circumstances. So there's pharmaceutical hydrogen sulfide donors, and then there's natural hydrogen sulfide donors. Um, so of course the natural ones would be things like uh, N-acetylcysteine um, compounds from garlic, uh, such as derivatives of allicin, uh, which is one of the key compounds, active compounds in garlic. Uh, and then also the isothiocyanates, which are key components in cruciferous vegetables. Um, now it's not clear at this point whether those dietary sources would be consumed in high enough amounts to really have a major effect. Um, but the use of therapeutic uh, hydrogen sulfide donors is primarily at this point being explored more for cardiovascular disease. Uh -huh. Some of the others that I mentioned um, yeah. with caution around use in uh, cancer. Okay. Um, I just want to, and that's more of a hypothetical use or they do have evidence in humans or animal models. Uh, there certainly are um, studies and clinical trials okay. and I believe I'd have to go back and look, but I believe some of them may have been improved already. Okay. Um, really, that's very interesting. 
<laughs> that's really interesting god yeah it's 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 actually a pretty vast literature now uh, yeah. it's really been exploding in the last five to ten years which is uh, when i started digging into this a while back um again because i you know my um training in functional medicine um i also originally had kind of this negative view of hydrogen sulfide and it was something that was uh, you know a compound that you did not want to have in excess um and that if it was excessive you want to treat that um, or look at ways to potentially reduce it or mitigate it somehow um but, but i think this whole story of the positive side is something that really is um i i was kind of surprised that i wasn't fully aware of this uh, so once i dug in there's really a lot of literature on it it's very it's really exciting i'm glad i'm glad we're talking about it here first i can get the hydrogen sulfide story out actually I, I don't know if we're first but we're early i mean it's well, very, I it it's, is it's exciting yeah and i think it's important as clinicians to you know we're, we talk a lot of focus a lot in functional medicine on the concept of systems biology on also omics and kind of looking yes. at the big picture mm -hmm. so this really is a classic example that we want to know the fuller story um, in order to take that into account so that you know really what should potentially be done to fully assess a patient, yes. obviously, before they're treated. Um, so if you're just looking at and considering only one factor or one aspect and using only one type of test, then you may not get the full picture and you may not be aware of some potential downsides of that treatment. Yes. I mean, I, to, with respect to the fact that we do encounter tough guts and, you know, our, our, I think some of our interventions are perhaps less successful than they were. Certainly when I first started my career, I know we have tougher and tougher guts. And so, you know, we expand our horizon looking for other villains. And I know hydrogen sulfide definitely, um, you know, is, is something that's come up in conversation in our rounds and something we've, we've addressed or considered clinically in refractory SIBO, but yeah, very important to have this nuanced view. God, I mean, you know, you could really focus on eliminating hydrogen sulfide perhaps, and then kick in hypertension and have no idea of the correlation with that. Is that, is that too outrageous? Yeah. I mean, that would be the potential concern because of these cardiometabolic diseases where they have noted that patients tend to have a reduction in these reactive sulfur species, uh, depending on which ones they, they measure, um, there's actually some ways to measure kind of those collectively. Just in serum, it's actually a fairly straightforward way to do it. Um, I'm not sure if it's available clinically. Uh, it's been looked at in various uh, studies to date. Um, but that would be the main concern is really looking at the big picture for the patient. And if this is a major factor in influencing their antioxidant status, um, and actually, we'll, we can talk about one of the key studies uh, recently that came out showing that the microbiome, the beneficial species, mm -hmm. actually can produce various reactive sulfur species that was shown in the study to contribute to antioxidant status. And then antibiotics that reduce them reduce the overall systemic antioxidant status. So, you know, the question is, do we really want to do that? Yeah. Interesting. All right, so I, I, I want to um, I want to talk about the microbiome and its role in all of this and how we can support it. I think before we jump into that, um, what did I want to talk about here? I guess, oh, I was thinking about laboratory assessments and how we might how we might actually measure it. I you know, so we can get a methionine easy enough and we can look at, you know, some of the transsulfuration compounds. We can measure glutathione, et cetera. We can look at, you know, taurine and we can look at sulfate. I mean, would these, are these, any of these surrogate markers? If we did uh, some of this, the, 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 the more broad classic functional medicine testing, would these be low or out of balance in your read on the literature? They could potentially be helpful in giving an overall picture. Um, so again, kind of looking at that sort of omics approach that's emerging, uh, the microbiome is an important place to look, the metabolome, also some yes. of the compounds that you mentioned, uh, those certainly um, do give you insights into the overall um, reactive sulfur species sort of status overall. We could look at cysteine. Yeah. 
Exactly. Glutathione is one of the major ones, and that's been known for a long time. Um, so you can certainly get an overall picture. Um, tests that also look at measures of oxidative stress uh, can be important um, because that would suggest that there is an increased demand uh, for um, uh, increasing the antioxidant capacity. Uh, so certainly getting the overall picture, and we can kind of dive in a little bit. Uh, of course, mostly we want to focus on the stool testing, the gut testing, yeah. but um, there are other types of tests. Uh, Diagnostic Solutions Lab also offers uh, metabolomics testing, where you can get uh, quite a few of these transsulfuration pathway metabolites, for example, oxidative stress metabolites, amino acid metabolites, uh, to help you kind of put that picture together for a patient. Awesome really helpful. And then we can consult with you or some of the other brilliant people that I know over there and just piece this together. If we're suspicious Absolutely. with our patients, that would be, that's, that's just what, fabulous. Yeah, that would be fabulous. That is what we're there for. Um, okay. So then with that, so two, two areas, I want to just make sure that you've covered the dietary components that would help increase the um, hydrogen sulfide and associated players. And then I absolutely want to talk about the microbiome and then we can kind of tuck into the microbiome for, you know, a, a good chunk of time and what we're looking for and how we might address it, et cetera, et cetera. I'd love to. Yeah. So diet is definitely, when you think of ways to influence um, the overall reactive sulfur species um, set of compounds, uh, particularly hydrogen sulfide, because that's sort of one of the major ones, diet is, is really key. Um, so after a patient assessment, um, and you've just determined whether the patient may have a need for increased sulfur compounds to contribute to their antioxidant status, or possibly they're already um, elevated, you suspect they may be in a scenario where you don't want to do that. So it's really important to kind of know what you want to do, obviously, uh, before you dive in. But as far as scenarios where um, that's been confirmed in conditions like cardiovascular disease, et cetera. Uh, and especially if they have any SNPs or these genetic uh, variations in the key pathways, like the transsulfuration pathway. And I happen to be one of those. And heart oh, yeah. disease does run in, in our family. Um, and so that's really where you may want to consider um, after sufficient assessment, uh, whether you need to have additional um, compounds that can help promote some of these beneficial reactive sulfur species. So uh, really the obvious ones, the best studied ones are, uh, number one would be the, um, for the most part, the um, uh, sulfur amino acids. So methionine and cysteine. Uh, and that's really looking to having adequate levels of those uh, versus a deficiency, for example. Um, but beyond that, because there are concerns uh, about going too high in some of those. Well, and um, that's primarily animal sources. Is that correct? correct? Yeah. Yes. So, okay, go ahead. Yeah. And high protein can have detrimental effects on the microbiome. Um, we can certainly talk about that when we get to talking about the microbiome a bit more, but um, the really the main ones in the diet, aside from the sulfur amino acids, are compounds uh, from garlic, for example, uh, from cruciferous vegetables. Those are probably the best, best known um, and other plant sources. Um, they've actually shown that these uh, tend to be metabolized in the body in a way that releases hydrogen sulfide. And then hydrogen sulfide then can be converted into these um, antioxidant sulfur compounds. Again, these RSS um, type compounds. Uh, so that's one set of sources. Uh, but another line of research uh, that I think is just fascinating has come out recently as well, um, showing that other types of polyphenols. So these are not necessarily plant compounds that have sulfur as part of their chemical structure. So uh -huh. they can't directly donate a sulfur. Um, they found in several studies that common antioxidants, um, anthocyanins, uh, rosmarinic acid, et cetera, uh, also can um, cause the conversion of hydrogen sulfide to these other compounds. So in a sense, um, they're actually detoxifying or converting the hydrogen sulfide. And some scientists have proposed that this may be the major mechanism for how these various polyphenols actually have health benefits. That's so interesting. You know, my argument is these polyphenols are just 
wonderkins <laughs> you know of the plant world because they influence they they influence dna methyltransferases and you know the 1011 translocation enzymes like the they influence key players in regulating epigenetics and i've often said that i think perhaps one of the ways they exert their extraordinary pleiotropic uh, effects is through influencing yeah, you know, the epigenome and gene regulation, but it's, it's, it makes me chuckle that there's, you know, there's other scientists out there saying that perhaps it's through influencing. Um, well, it may not actually be mutually exclusive um, yeah. because some of these effects of hydrogen sulfide and reactive sulfur compounds actually can then result in epigenetic changes. Or the epigenetic so changes can, can influence them. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, absolutely. Yeah. I, I hear you, but they are, they're just amazing compounds and they're, they're involved in regulating a lot where, you know, at a glance, mechanistically, they might be a head scratcher as to how. So what are some of the polyphenols you've come across that really seem to play a nice role with uh, activating hydrogen sulfide? That's a great question. So uh, I don't have the papers in front of me, but um, I do recall that uh, the anthocyanins were mm. a, a class of polyphenols involved, um, I believe quercetin, uh, rosmarinic acid, right. um, yep. green tea polyphenols, um, and then a few others are also looked at. Uh, also, coenzyme Q10 uh, has a similar effect. So there's this whole set of, um, whether they're polyphenols, they all have this particular type of chemical constituent. Um, and that's really the part that is thought to be involved in this uh, metabolism of hydrogen sulfide. So when you think about it, um, they're the ones that contribute sulfur directly. So if you're wanting to increase the sulfur, um, the sulfur compounds and the sulfur amino acids uh, may be helpful. And that is uh, documented in research. Um, but also, if you want to sort of balance and help um, prevent hydrogen sulfide from being excessive, in general, the polyphenols that can convert hydrogen sulfide to these beneficial compounds um, may also be beneficial for that, uh, from that standpoint as well. Um, there are a few other things. Uh, so we know that various minerals combine hydrogen sulfide. Uh, so the best known, I think that's been used quite a bit therapeutically is bismuth, uh, but actually zinc combined hydrogen sulfide as well. Uh, so it can be used potentially as an adjunct uh, way to help reduce hydrogen sulfide levels. Um, okay. I think in the big picture though, and we'll um, talk about this more when we get to the microbiome piece, um, but actually, and this is getting into a little bit more physiology, so bear with me, <laughs> but mm -hmm. hydrogen sulfide is primarily detoxified by, the mi by mitochondria. Uh, so there's a particular set of enzymes. Um, it's called the SQR complex for sulfide quinone reductase. Um, so that's the main complex that detoxifies hydrogen sulfide. Um, it's especially elevated typically in the colon to deal with the usual higher levels of hydrogen sulfide produced in the colon. Um, but most of our cells also have the same enzyme in the mitochondria. Um, and they've actually shown that not only does that enzyme help detoxify i.e. break down hydrogen sulfide, but that same complex is what's uh, also largely responsible for producing these beneficial reactive sulfur species. So essentially, as long as you have healthy mitochondria, you are potentially able to handle a certain amount of hydrogen sulfide and not just detoxify it, but actually generate antioxidants from that. It's so fascinating. So it's a, it is a really fascinating process. Um, and just again, to kind of underline when we're really thinking about this, cardiovascular disease, number one, diabetes, number two, neurodegenerative conditions, number three, and more broadly, you know, the diseases associated with aging, you know, which kind of opens the door to, um, many of them with it, with, with perhaps a pause around cancer, where excess antioxidants uh, or inflammation quenching activity could actually have a uh, negative influence on the cancer therapeutics. Is that correct? Right. 
Yeah, that's that's certainly the picture that's emerging from research. Um, but as always, uh, particularly with the cancer story, um, that's quite a bit more research would need to be done to further clarify that. But currently, mm-hmm. it's considered a concern. Yep. Okay, so let's get over. Let's tuck into the microbiome and talk about, um, you know, how we can support healthy hydrogen sulfide and RSS production and, you know, who, who, who the players are we want to nourish and how we might do that and how we can use, you know, the diagnostic solutions, amazing test to guide us through this information. And then maybe we can swing over to how we might identify excess and, and how we might think about that. Okay. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So as far as the microbiome, um, again, traditionally, the ones that have been thought of as being the primary hydrogen sulfide producers were referred to as the sulfate-reducing bacteria, or SRB, and that's referring primarily to at least the main ones that were identified over time were um, bilophila and then also desulfovibrio. Uh, so those actually can, can produce hydrogen sulfide uh, based on a particular process that has a fairly technical technical name called dissimilatory sulfate reduction. <laughs> so it's <laughs> a bit of a mouthful, but um, basically that means that they're able to convert sulfate into hydrogen sulfide. So sources of sulfate in the diet or derived from mucus actually in the gut um, can be used as substrates to produce hydrogen sulfide. Um, so that was really the main focus since they were kind of the first recognized um, and then focused on quite a bit over the years. Uh, Once again, as part of this whole sort of paradigm shift, even that picture is changing and we're really expanding actually. Uh, So now we know actually from recent studies that the main source of hydrogen sulfide uh, in many scenarios is likely to actually be cysteine. Um, So the amino acid cysteine, that uh, process is actually carried out potentially by a wide range of bacteria. Um, The best studied are various proteobacteria. Um, So these are the same bacteria such as E. coli, uh, Enterobacter, Klebsiella, uh, Proteus, and Fusobacterium um, that we tend to think of as associated with inflammation, inflammatory conditions. Um, So they're kind of potentially bad guys all around. but this is a major process. And actually, uh, one particular study that compared the production of hydrogen sulfide, um, actually using uh, stool samples from various patients, uh, found that when they supplied cysteine, um, that hydrogen sulfide production overall was about a thousand fold higher than when they supplied sulfate. Hmm. Um, and then when they've done various genomic analysis, they find that these cysteine. Um, uh, pathway genes that are involved in producing hydrogen sulfide are a lot more abundant typically in the microbiome than the genes for uh, that sort of um, sulfate reduction bacteria process. Uh, so the list of microbes has really expanded quite a bit beyond just bilophila and desulfovibrio. Uh, of course, many of these others that we talked about, Klebsiella, uh, E. coli, et cetera, are generally thought to be involved in conditions like IBD, um, sometimes associated with IBS, et cetera. Um, they can produce other factors like lipopolysaccharide that can promote inflammation. Uh, so it's a little unclear, is it really the hydrogen sulfide they're producing that's causing issues, or is it some of these other effects they can have from the wide range of products that they produce? Uh, but that's really kind of the, the main take home is that we now know of many bacteria a um, couple of things I want to add to that. One is um, the the genus um, Bacteroides, and then others that are in the Bacteroidetes phylum also have the genes for producing hydrogen sulfide. Um, and several of those have been characterized in the oral microbiome. Uh, so we know that hydrogen sulfide is a common product in the oral microbiome from um, groups like Prevotella, uh, Fusobacterium and a few others. Porphyromonas gingivalis is another one. Uh, so we do know though, hydrogen sulfide. Are these? It, it, I mean, but are these guys players that we want, or players associated with um, pathology, like in the oral microbiome? So far, to kind of summarize the research overall, the idea is that at low levels. 
Many of okay. them are just normal bacteria. Uh, for example, we have uh, E. coli, which is listed as Escherichia um, on GI map under the normal bacteria section, the commensal section. Uh, so it performs actually many beneficial roles as long as it's not overly elevated. Um, and also it can change its functions uh, under certain circumstances. So if there's excess protein getting into the colon, for example, uh, from either a high protein diet or from not digesting and absorbing amino acids very well, which is pretty common, uh, then you can have a process called protein fermentation happen in the colon where these types of bacteria then can break down amino acids and generate a whole range of chemicals, hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, uh, and other products that may have negative effects if they're in excess. So it's really more of thought to be kind of a level thing. Yeah, actually it, some, yeah, some of them are actually essential for certain functions. So just real quick, E. coli, for example, um, tends to live in the mucus layer, particularly in the colon, and to some extent in the small intestine. It's actually been shown to help with intestinal epithelial regeneration. Interesting. Yeah. So it's like a, it's a friend of acromantia. Are they buddies in the mucin? Yep, they're right, <laughs> right next to each other there in the mucus layers. <laughs> well, I just want to go back to the oral microbiome. Like peach and javalis is not something we consider a player that we run around, but in, again, in, in lower amounts, it may be just a, a resonant of the, of a healthy oral microbiome. Would you, is that correct? Um, that one is probably less clear. So I think we get those questions quite a bit uh, regarding the organisms on GI map um, because we have these sort of neat and tidy categories. It's either a pathogen, it's either yeah. a normal commensal, or it's an opportunist. But as you can imagine, there's sort of variations where something is kind of a mild opportunist or it's really almost a pathogen. <laughs> it's not a, not a good opportunist to have. Yeah. Um, so they do vary from organism to organism. And I would say overall, uh, at least based on what I've, I've read about Porphyromonas, it doesn't seem like something you'd want to have significant levels of. Okay. Okay. So just because it can produce hydrogen sulfide doesn't necessarily mean it's a key player, even as we're recognizing the benefit of this. So just one other thing, and then I want to just talk about how we might interpret a GI, a GI effects, thinking about some of these guys. Um, it, would that make... Like, would we think of N-acetylcysteine then being sort of a prebiotic if we want to stoke hydrogen sulfide, you know, giving that cysteine? That's a good question. So I don't know. Um, it probably has been studied in terms of its effects on the microbiome. And unfortunately, I'm not familiar with specific research on that one. Um, but that is one of the um, beneficial antioxidants that has been studied recently and shown to uh, actually also promote the production of hydrogen sulfide and these reactive oxygen or reactive sulfur species, I should say, the beneficial ones. Um, so it's sort of been traditionally thought of as something that leads to glutathione production, uh, which it certainly does, uh, but also it seems to have beneficial effects through hydrogen sulfide and then this RSS. So um, kind of bringing this a little bit back up to the big picture, um, the one last piece I want to fill out as far as the microbiome. So we have uh, different types of hydrogen sulfide producers. Some of these are kind of bad characters. They're the ones that are um, potentially more inflammatory, et cetera. They've been associated with conditions. Um, on the other side, uh, really uh, interesting new research has come out recently showing that the normal bacteria, so we're talking about the butyrate producers, uh, primarily in the Clostridia class, um, also produce reactive sulfur species that have been shown to be to have antioxidant effects and to actually help contribute to systemic antioxidant status. So this is yet another potential way mm -hmm. in which these beneficial bacteria. So we think of you know beneficial bacteria producing butyrate, uh, producing several other types of common beneficial factors. This is yet another one that potentially can be beneficial. So if you think of sort of this microbiome somewhat simplistically is bad guys and good guys. The good guys want to keep the environment um, basically kind of in homeostatic conditions, meaning no inflammation. Uh, they want to keep the gut healthy because they benefit from a healthy gut. So that's kind of that mutualistic relationship. 
the bad guys tend to want to do the opposite. Um, they do better actually under inflammatory conditions. So okay. anything they can do to inhibit the bad guys and then uh, stoke inflammation um, may be something that's that's not so beneficial. Um, so really, it t- comes down to primarily the balance between good bacteria and then these opportunists and pathogens. So for many reasons, we don't want to see these opportunists or pathogens elevated and hydrogen sulfide production may be one of them because we don't want to see that in excess. So just again, how to think about this clinically, you've given us, you know, diet, dietary interventions, nutrients, we can consider CoQ10, NAC, foods, fabulous polyphenols that you listed off how we can look at the microbiome and we can consider the metabolome and the genome. So if, so we have some tools, even as directly measuring hydrogen sulfide and the associated um, species isn't yet in clinical prime time. So we can't directly measure those. We can certainly dance around omically and get a really good snapshot, you would say, and do you just want to talk about some of the tools that you guys yeah. have again? Yeah. So um, I'd like to first kind of wrap up the um, stool testing GI map just mm-hmm. to finish kind of that, uh, looking at that more comprehensively. So that's a, that is a big part of assessing the microbiome potential contribution, um, of course, to overall health, but potentially to this hydrogen sulfide picture as well. Um, so we do know a lot of the hydrogen sulfide producers based on research. Uh, We actually have some resources on our website uh, that lists the known hydrogen sulfide producers. Um, So that certainly is a good way to kind of get an uh, assessment of uh, which microbes are likely to be contributing to that if there's concerns about excess hydrogen sulfide. Um, And then, as I mentioned, there's also the beneficial bacteria, uh, but also there's the physiological picture. Uh, So you certainly want to be looking at Uh, the inflammation picture that can give you some great information on the state of the health of the intestinal lining. Um, And in particular, if you don't have sufficient beneficial bacteria and they're not producing enough of these short chain fatty acids, uh, that can have negative effects then on the health of the intestinal lining, Uh, particularly in the colon, that would be the colon cells or colonocytes. And those are really important for detoxifying hydrogen sulfide. Um, So it's thought that in inflammatory bowel disease, colon cancer, um, the risk with high hydrogen sulfide may be not only just the higher levels of hydrogen sulfide produced by the microbes, but a decrease in the ability to detoxify that Mm -hmm. and convert that to these antioxidants. So you want to kind of look at both sides of the equation. You want to look at the microbiome balance, but you also want to look at um, indicators of intestinal health. Another key piece would be digestion. Yeah. So we do know that uh, it's well-documented in research that when there's excess protein entering the colon, that can cause excess protein fermentation. So that's that process where uh, microbes, uh, particularly the ones that can um, produce things like hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, et cetera, they convert those amino acids to these negative products. Uh, Luckily, in research, um, there's lots of studies showing that simply supporting the beneficial bacteria with fiber and polyphenols um, in particular, that that can help to reduce uh, pretty substantially that protein fermentation process. So you're going to get far fewer of those negative products produced. Um, That's actually been well established. I mean, would you actually recommend a brief low-protein diet in, in this population, or is this protein fermentation happening because of a digestive imbalance or both? That's a great question. So we, when we review patient cases with clinicians, um, there certainly are, um, relatively isolated cases where they mention that their patient is on a high protein diet. Uh, we often do see an elevation in these, uh, hydrogen sulfide type producers, inflammatory microbes. Uh-huh. On flat, in fact, I just reviewed one earlier this week. Um, it was on kind of a carnivore type diet. Yeah. Um, so the risk there is that you're not getting enough of the fiber and polyphenols to help counteract some of those right. effects. Um, and if you think about it, 
and this is, again, lots of research supports this, that when you have a healthy growing microbiome, so they're getting plenty of fiber, fermentable carbohydrates, they actually need amino acids for their own growth. So they're going to outcompete the bad guys for these amino acids because they're going to use them to fuel their growth. Um, and they don't necessarily pr uh, produce hydrogen sulfide and other bad products from it. They're just incorporating it into their proteins as they're growing. Um, so it's really, when you look at this picture, you're looking at it kind of from the overall ecosystem level. And that's kind of what you're trying to get an insight into with stool testing. It's so fascinating. I mean, there's a lot, there's a big discussion going on in, in higher protein diets right now, sort of a swing from the fasting, intermittent fasting, you know, low protein recommendations from Longo, et cetera. And people are moving towards this whole protein model. And, and we're, we're, we're just creating a, a little bit of a blog on it. I've been, it's just been a big topic in, in our space lately. And it just makes sense to me. So what I, what I concluded and what I am going to trial myself is toggling between, you know, very high polyphenols on, um, you know, the classic diet that we used in our research study in the, young, the younger you intensive, we call it, and, you know, a little bit of higher protein for muscle building, et cetera. So right. it, it just, it, it makes sense to me. And, and there are certainly individuals right now who, or there have been around for quite a while. I mean, we all know them, we see them in clinical practice and you look at their laboratory data who've been doing like carnivore, these crazy carnivore diets. And at some point that is just going to disrupt the microbiome profoundly, and then there's going to be systemic ramifications. And, I, and you're describing a way that you can pick it up pretty clearly. Yeah, I think that's that's a significant risk. And I have reviewed a number of cases that basically were that scenario where patients have been on carnivore diets for a pretty long period of time, in, in several cases, more than a year, for example. Um, and in most cases, they have a very, what we would consider to be a very dysbiotic microbiome. Uh, and unfortunately, in some of those cases, even a higher calprotectin. Um, now, we can't say that there's necessarily cause and effect there because it wasn't a, a study, but um, that's just sort of anecdotal evidence that uh, we do tend to see what we would yeah. expect based on the research. Um, the research is very clear, though, that when you, um, you can mitigate the higher protein intake uh, or if patients are not quite digesting optimally, um, you can mitigate that to some extent with increased fiber and polyphenols. Um, mm -hmm. That's that is really well documented. It makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. You're just feet nourishing the microbiome, and you know, and you could do, use digestive aids as well. Well, um, so fascinating. <laughs> there's so much. Like, there's just really a lot of food for thought here. Um, what else do you want to say? Do you want to talk about the the big picture labs, or is there anything? Um, you know, anything that, that we missed that you want to uh, circle back to or anything you want to underscore in what we've already discussed? Absolutely. Yeah. So there are a couple of things I just kind of wanted to wrap up about um, other types of testing to consider. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so it's the kind of the crux of this emerging picture on reactive sulfur species um, has to do a lot with the sources, uh, which are diet, microbiome in terms of external sources, um, the transsulfuration pathway, so as far as our internal generation of hydrogen sulfide, ways to assess the transsulfuration pathway can be helpful. Um, currently, primarily, that would be through um, metabolomics, for example, uh, blood markers and or metabolomics, uh, where you're looking at the sulfur-related species that are part of that pathway. Uh, so, for example, on the OMX test, organic uh, acids microbiome test or metabolomics test from D Diagnostic Solutions Lab. Um, in terms of the more directly related markers, we have methionine, uh, cystathionine, which is one of the intermediates in that pathway. That's one of the compounds that comes after homocysteine. Uh, there's also cysteine, uh, which is mm -hmm. basically um, in primarily the blood version of cysteine. Um, so it's sort of like a oxidized version. Uh, it's two cysteines together. That's primarily what we see in the blood. Um, that's influenced by various things, including oxidative stress. Uh, we also can detect taurine. Um, so you get several of these different components. And then there are markers related to glutathione as well. So you can get a good picture of how a patient's doing. 
uh, in terms of their compounds related to this transsulfuration pathway. Uh, then in terms of genetics, with genomic insights, uh, there's also really good representation of the genes in that transsulfuration pathway. And as I mentioned just anecdotally earlier that um, I do have one of the major SNPs that has actually been identified as a cardiovascular risk factor, um, and that's in one of those transsulfuration pathway genes. Um, so, and that's also been well studied as Which a potential one? risk. It's actually the, uh, it's called cystothionine gamma lyase. Uh -huh which confusingly is usually, the abbreviation is usually CTH. That's the abbreviation that's used in Genomic Insights. But you'll also see in research that the, another acronym is often used, which is CSE. Um, so if you're looking up the gene name, it's either CTH or CSE, um, but that means cystothionine gamma lyase. Um, and that's the one that's uh, primarily upregulated by NRF2, for example, under stress conditions uh, to generate more hydrogen sulfide. And so you have a, you've got a, a variant there that does, is not as effective. As Unfortunately, yes. But <laughs> so, you could, you could stoke your microbiome, it seems, pretty easily to, you know, have lots of species who are producing it, right? I mean, would it be, would that be a reasonable workaround? Um, I try to get mine primarily from diets and supplements. Um, so I do eat a lot of cruciferous vegetables. Sure. Unfortunately, garlic doesn't agree with me, so I can't do that. Um, but certainly cruciferous vegetables and then various um, supplements. Um, and I, I try not to overdo it. So I think it's when it comes to polyphenols, I think um, adequate levels are good, but high dose may have some negative effects. In what way? Um, sorry, got to ask you, <laughs> what no are so as we talked about, um, you know, there's some concern that, that really high dose, um, in some studies there, there's actually research showing that high dose antioxidants can have a pro-oxidant effect. So oh. they can kind of have the opposite of what, uh, you would expect. Um, but again, there are these concerns at long-term consumption of higher doses, uh, especially if, um, in a scenario where, you know, cancer already arises then high dose may have some negative effects. So but thinking that's... about them at, in their antioxidant role, we, we would want to be mindful. But dietary Correct. sources, I can't, I don't know, I can't imagine fallout of, you know, consuming too many right. veggies. Yeah, I think it, the concern is around concentrated sources. Okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, okay. What else did you want to add? Was there any, when is there anything else on the lab testing or, um, oh, you know what I wanted to say to folks listening is I will, yeah, I had a great discussion on the metabolomics profile with Dr. Betsy Redman. So I will also pop that into the show notes as well. So people can access, um, that really fun podcast that I did with her on the DSL, uh, product that you can now access. That sounds great. So there are a couple other things that I wanted to mention real quick, just more kind of um, potential clinical pearls. Mm -hmm. So one is that um, overall, there are some lifestyle factors that have been known to also help boost hydrogen sulfide. Um, so if patients have conditions where hydrogen sulfide is thought to potentially be um, deficient and these reactive sulfur species, uh, exercise actually has been I shown. You read my mind. Hydrogen sulfide production. I mean, uh, well, it turns up it turns up the volume on mitochondria. So that was my crude mechanism in my head. I'm sure there's much more, you know, elegant. Right. Yeah. There's sort of that hormetic change. effect where um, exercise does generate a certain level of reactive oxygen species and oxidative stress, and that probably triggers the protective response that then upregulates hydrogen sulfide and then these reactive oxygen reactive sulfur species. Um, and then also fasting. Um, so it's mostly been studied in terms of dietary restriction, mm -hmm. uh, but there are a few scattered studies at this point, small pilot studies looking at intermittent fasting. And wow. so far, uh, the results uh, do also show potential benefits. Um, and one of my favorites is uh, for patients who may have high fusobacterium, which is one of the key uh, hydrogen sulfide producers that can have negative effects. Uh, for uh -huh. example, fusobacterium has been associated with both uh, colon cancer and uh, inflammatory bowel disease uh, in high levels. 
when it's in the colon. Uh, actually, chocolate, cocoa, has been shown to inhibit fusobacterium. <laughs> That's one of my favorite uh, <laughs> bits from research on um, therapeutic factors. You can't go wrong with chocolate. Chocolate actually, you know, those flavonoids are epigenetically <laughs> active as well. <laughs> Absolutely not. And I certainly uh, don't hesitate on that one. <laughs> well, as usual, this has been a really tour de force conversation. I I know that it will prompt a lot of thinking with the clinicians among us and would love to hear from anybody who's who's in, in fact, I'd love to hear about people who are thinking about hydrogen sulfide and through the lens that um, Tom has described to us today and what you're seeing. I mean, I honestly, for me, it's just some of the refractory hypertension cases, you know, people with really clear, you know, either heart disease themselves or family history. I mean, there's a lot of ways we can think about this. And then of course, you know, with my longevity sort of biohacker hat on, you know, I'm, I'm very curious to see how they're talking about this in, in that space. So I just, I appreciate you coming on once again and just kind of spinning the the, the prism a little bit differently, you know, and giving us an expanded view and insight and, um, you know, really just doing some nice teaching. So thanks for joining it's me today, my Dr. Pleasure. Fabian. You're welcome. It's definitely my, my pleasure. To be continued.